1: Get iXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off iXL membership when they sign up today at iXL.com audio. Visit iXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
2: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kurt Mullen. Yeah, I got a belly full of Haganda's, but I got more power. <laughs> <laughs> that and more, but before that... I just want to say, during the holidays, the post office can get very, very busy. That's why you should choose Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can also do at Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. With stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use stamps.com. We use it at Risk and the Story Studio, and we've always loved it. So don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Just sign up for stamps.com instead. There's no risk With our promo code RISK, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Faux Ferocious, behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Trial and Error. Two stories that were recorded when we did the Risk Live show recently in Burlington, Vermont. And one from when we were recently in Washington, D.C., now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Ariel Shirker, who is a hypnotherapist. You can find her at arielhypnosis.ca. But before that, we're going to hear from someone on the Risk team. Brad Lawrence is one of our story coaches. He helps a lot of the people who tell stories at our live shows prepare their stories. And he's a teacher of ours at the Story Studio. Brad has this brilliant suggestion that I've heard him make in storytelling classes. He'll tell his students, tell a story about a time you were not a hero. (laughs) Tell a story uh, where you don't come out smelling like a rose. (laughs) And I think he shows us how that's done in this next story. Here he is now. This is Brad Lawrence at the Risk Live Show in Washington, D.C., with a story we call Joining the Resistance.
3: It is the 90s. Uh, I am 25 years old. I've been living in DC for about a year and I'm working at a bookstore. And I walk into the shop one day and uh, my friend Mike is behind the counter and he has this look on his face, expression of like stunned glee. And he says, Guess what? James quit. He told Evan to fuck off and then he just walked out. And I was like, James quit? And he was like, Or he was fired. Because immediately after he said that, Evan was like, fuck you, get the fuck out, you're fired. So it was kind of six of one or half dozen of the other. And I'm not surprised that Evan wanted to fire James because Evan has always hated James from day one. But the fuck off from James, that is a surprise. That is more energy than I would have ever ascribed to that kid. Because James has always seemed to me to be sort of like the living embodiment of playing Morrissey at half speed all right because every time I walk into the book and I don't really know James at all like we've worked together for a year but he works the day shift I work the night shift we are the ships that pass in the mid-afternoon and uh but whenever I do come in and I see him there he is just this one ashen limp noodle of despair kind of draped over the cash register and as you pass by his gaze, he sort of follows you with this listless half-lidded gaze until you pass from the zone of his depression and it's over and that's what I know of James. Um, But then Mike says, but actually after work tonight, I'm going to go out and have a beer with James and get the skinny, Uh, do you want to come with me? And I'm like, absolutely, I want to come and not because I... Care about James's story. I do not, but I do not want to go home because I am in a long-term relationship that is on the rocks. Uh, it'll be on the rocks for the next seven years. <laughs> the long-term part has not happened yet. <laughs> but me and the girlfriend, we moved to D.C. together. Uh, we met when she was attending a very fancy college in St. Louis, and I was the coffee shop boy that she had picked up and said, come with me to DC. And I said, great. And when we made this mutual decision, what neither of us realized was that I have no life skills (laughs) at all. None. So hence, like a year into living together in DC, uh, I am working a barely minimum wage job to barely make rent. And I have one friend. I have one friend and that's Mike, and that's all I've accomplished in a year in DC. And other than that, the only thing I am bringing to our relationship is my raging insecurity and my terror that she is going to abandon me. <laughs> right? But now we have, love late, we have reached a kind of detente. And I figure the best way to keep that piece rolling is to not be around. <laughs> so I am very happy to go to the bar. Uh, With Mike and we go and James is already there waiting for us And he opens with a surprise because we walk in and he smiles And then he follows that with I guess it's probably too late to ask Evan for a letter of reference, huh? (laughs) Follows with a joke Two surprises, but these two surprises actually are They are the precursors to an entire evening of surprises Because James is not what I had thought he was at all He is not the limp noodle of despair uh, in fact, he is uh, riveting, he is intelligent, he is bright, uh, he is insightful and funny. We range uh, uh, topics from his ongoing conflict with Evan to then, you know, art and books and music and pop culture and, and history and politics, and he has something interesting and vital and, and hilarious to say on every subject, and he says these things that feel familiar, But also, like, if you scratch surface a little bit, you will find a world of new ideas you have never considered before. And by the end of the evening, we close the bar. By the end of the evening, I am really kind of taken with the guy, right? My face hurts from laughing. And we're walking away from the bar, walking down 16th Street, and we pass by that big Masonic... Lodge there, and Mike makes some crack about the Masonic lodge. At which point, James turns on his heels and he says, "But you don't know nothing to see here; just a little joke, Mister Mason. People don't need to put our names on a list or anything, isn't that right, Jim and Bob?" And we all sort of laugh about that. And then we hit the next corner and we kind of go our separate ways. And I, and I get home and then you know go to bed. And the next day, about halfway through the afternoon, my phone rings. I pick it up and it's James. And he says, hey, man, I had a really great time hanging out with you last night. Do you want to do it again tonight? I've got nothing going on, obviously. And <laughs> it was my day off, so I was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, and it's not in my apartment, which is always a bonus. So we did it again that night. We went out. We're having beers. I get the exact same thing, just laughing and, and just really sort of taking to one another and, and, and sort of everything he says is just great. And then about halfway through the night, he makes this reference to the joke he'd made the night before about the Masons, and he was like, I probably shouldn't have made that crack about the Masons. I'm probably on their list now. And I was like, you are definitely on their list now. Uh, And we we joke about that. And then, again, we close out the bar, and I am walking home, and I'm not going to lie to you, there is a lot riding on this two-day friendship for me right now. Because... My girlfriend, she is a 23-year-old executive of an NGO, right? And so when we have a dinner party, it is all of her NGO friends, all of these smart, college-educated people, and all of their Hillstaffer fiancés staring at me, wondering what I'm doing there, or if I'm lucky, staring at me and Mike, maybe— but you know, if I can bring someone else to our social circle who is as clearly educated and smart and witty as James is, that can only redound to my favor, right? So I get home, and I crawl into bed next to my girlfriend, and I go to sleep. And then about like three or four in the morning, my phone rings, and I jump out of bed, and I grab it and go into the living room, and it's James. And James says, have you ever heard of the Illuminati? And I say, I have heard the word. And he says, Well, the Illuminati are the secret organization that control the world's economy. And I say, Will they still control the world's economy in the morning? And he says, If there's a world, and I'm like, I'm willing to take that chance. And I hang up the phone. And I go back into the bedroom, and I get in there. and my, my, my girlfriend did not wake up, so it's fine. And it's just weird that he called me with this at 3 or 4 in the morning, but he's also, he's a guy in his 20s, and guys in their 20s make terrible choices, so fine. <laughs> and I go back to bed, and the next day, uh, it's afternoon. It's time for me to go into the bookstore, and I go in for my shift, and I immediately turn right around and go back outside to have a cigarette because I'm a model employee. <laughs> and I'm having a cigarette, and I look down the street... And I see James coming towards me. And I I know that Evan has not left for the day. And if Evan comes down from the office and sees James there, like it's not gonna be great. Before I can say anything, James is standing there, and James says, Hey man, I'm really sorry I called you last night. I was I was weird. I was going home from the bar and I just I had this weird sensation that people were following me or something. It was just it was a weird thing, but uh I was drunk and I was like, it's not a big deal, we're all drunk. It's fine, uh, but if Evan comes down and sees you hanging around the shop, God only knows what his reaction's going to be. And he's like, "Oh yeah, you're, yeah, you're you're right, you're right. I'll I'll take off. I'll just, I'll call you later. I'll call you later." I'm like, "Yeah, no problem." And he goes and he walks away. He turns the corner, and this is when the phone calls begin. At first, just calls to my cell phone. Then it's calls to the shop phone, where Evan might answer. And then it's calls to my home phone, where my girlfriend might answer. And it's always James. And what James wants to talk about on each of these phone calls is always the same thing. It is the global international conspiracy uh, that has become aware that he knows all about them. And so they are following him around. Uh, There are people on benches taking notes as he passes by and watching him through binoculars at the second floor of Row House Windows. And he uh, is calling me because they've tapped his phone, but he he wants to get advice. And I have none. (laughs) I have no advice for this, so I stop answering the phone. At which point, James starts showing up Everywhere I go, uh, if I go out to a bar, James is there. If I go to a record store, James is there. If I go out to dinner with my girlfriend, James is suddenly next to the table signaling to me with his head that it's, I need to go talk to him right now, and so I will go and stand in the corner of Child Herald where he will explain to me that the black SUVs followed him to the restaurant. D.C. is full of black SUVs. <laughs> They've all followed him to the restaurant and I can see over his shoulder my girlfriend staring at us and I can see the expression on her face is like, like, we have been here for a year and you have two friends and one of them is psychotic? What am I doing with my life? And I don't know how to answer this. And that's when James starts showing up at the store. He's coming to the store. He had taken my admonishment not to come around when Evan was there. Not to come around when Evan was there. And so what he does instead is he sits across the street next to the metro entrance and stares at the front of the store. I will see him out there when I go to have a cigarette and we will stare at one another and he just does that until Evan leaves and then all of a sudden there he is on the other side of the counter telling me that the black helicopters with cameras on their bellies that have followed him to the store, and, and this—it it is the 90s. I am 25 years old. It is the 90s. It is before Google. There are no resources. You cannot look a thing up. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't exist. In the 90s, weird shit happened, and you made it up as you went, and you were always wrong. That's how the 90s worked. But finally, after... <laughs> After like two weeks of this, I finally think I'm going to get a reprieve. Because I come in one day, and Mike is there, and Mike has that expression on his face again. And he says, guess what James did? And my blood goes cold, and I'm like, what did James do? He says, well, last night, James went down to the White House, stripped off all of his clothes, got completely naked, and tried to climb the White House gates so he could have a conversation with Bill Clinton. And I say, that's insane. And Mike says, yeah, that's James. James is insane. And I say, why did he take up all of his clothes? Why was he naked? What was that about? And, And Mike goes, oh no, that was the one sane thing he did. Because when you're completely naked, then the Marines can see that you're not armed and they don't just shoot you. Instead, they do what they did with James. They drag you off the gates and haul you off to the psych ward. And I think, okay, I am off the hook. <laughs> because now he is in a hospital, and he's going to get the help he needs. And I think this because I am 25 years old and do not understand how the American healthcare system works. <laughs> because what actually happens after a 48-hour psych hold They boot him onto the sidewalk in a hospital, Johnny. No one could find his clothes. (laughs) So, about halfway through the day, I get a phone call from Mike, and Mike's like, He's out. (laughs) He just showed up in my place. Uh, I gave him a coat and uh, some boots. Mike is six foot four, six foot eight with the afro, James is five foot six. All right, so he's got this giant coat and these boots, and he's like, and he went out the door, and I don't know where he is, but I thought you should know he's on the street. And I'm like, thanks, thanks for the warning. Uh, And I I spend like the rest of the day kind of looking over my shoulder, like wondering what bush or shrub James is going to jump out of. And then uh, I'm at work, and it is a Friday night. And the shop that I worked at was kind of a, a single spot, it was kind of a hot spot. And so it is just packed to the gills with like hill staffers there to pick up books and one another. And I am just riding herd on their pheromones when suddenly James is there. And he's not on the other side of the counter. Now he's come behind the counter and he's behind the counter with me and the register. And he's just talking at the side of my face. And he's saying, I'm pretty sure they know that I know what I know. And if they know that I know what I know, then they must also know that you know what I know. And if they know that you know what I know, then they know what you know. So you got to watch your back and all I can think is that at any minute now, Evan's going to walk in this door, and he's going to see James behind the counter with me and the register, and he's going to fire me. I'm going to get fired, and then I'm going to have to go home and tell my girlfriend the one thing I had going on in this town I just got fired from, and then she's going to dump me, and I, you know, and like the entire year that I've been in D.C., I have felt like my own emotional and mental well-being has been hanging by a thread. Like, I feel like I am always in the precipice of some kind of, like, completely world-ending depression, and like, and like now I I feel like I am being pulled down by a drowning man. That's what this feels like to me now. And now it feels like it's a matter of survival. It feels like it's either me or him, and I decide in this minute it's gonna be me. (laughs) So I turn to James and I say, we should talk about this outside. And he's like, good idea. So we go outside. I give him a cigarette, take one for myself, light them both, and then I lean into James and I say the following. Look, man, don't worry about me. I can take care of myself. (laughs) I can watch my own back. But you're in the heart of this thing, man. Everybody who'd want to know what you know, they're all right here in D.C., where they can watch you. This is the belly of the beast, man. You cannot be here. Is there anywhere you can go tonight outside of the city? And James says, I have friends in Richmond. Go to Richmond. Go tonight. Don't even go home. Just go right to the bus station and go to Richmond. And he's like, good idea. I'm like, I know. And he turns around and he walks away and he gets to the corner and he glances over his shoulder one time before turning the corner and disappearing into the darkness. And I know in this moment I have done the single most mercenary thing I could do. I have thrown this vulnerable, mentally ill boy to the wolves of his own madness. But it was a matter of survival It was me or him And I cannot afford to regret it And it also happens By pure coincidence That I also did the exact right thing for James Because apparently he did exactly what I told him to do He went to Richmond But the friends he had in Richmond Were actually also friends of his family's So when he showed up there And burst in the front door And went to the bathroom And locked himself in And wouldn't come out Because they're spies They called his parents And his parents came down and took him back to Connecticut and got him the help he needed. And I did not see James again for a year. And then one day, I am walking into the Trist coffee shop, and there he is. He's sitting on a couch in the window, surrounded by people, friends, people I'd never met, I guess. And I walk in, and he sees me. We make eye contact, but there's no look of recognition on his face at all. And I don't know if he knew who I was or remembered who I was, if I was just a a shadow of past delusions that were now gone for him. And also in that year, a lot of my life had changed. I had gotten a second job at the Phillips Collection, and I had started taking acting classes at the conservatory the studio theater and i had started making friends at those places and i started making friends with my other co-workers at the bookstore as well i had sort of gotten myself out of my own isolation and things were better with the girl i would it's too neat to be like and after that after james lost his mind i thought i need to get my shit together that wasn't quite that simple but i do think that what happened with James was one of the wake-up calls that made me have to realize that my inability to take care of my relationship, my inability to take care of the situations I found myself in, all of that came back to my inability to take care of myself. But taking care of myself was something I couldn't do on my own. I needed to get out of myself. I needed to find friends. I needed to find a community. And I had done that in the intervening year. But I don't tell any of that to James. I don't say anything to James. I just return him that same lack of recognition. And I get my coffee. And I leave. And as I am walking past on the sidewalk, walking past that window where James is sitting with his friends, now talking to them, now not even acknowledging me, as I walk away, from, I wish James from a very safe distance. I wish him wellness. I wish him Health and sanity and safety, and I wish him better friends than the one he found in me. Thank you. Guess what? I have no life skills. Limp noodle noodle of despair. We we, we, we should talk about this outside. Outside, outside, outside. I've got nothing going on, obviously. What am I doing with with, with my life? This is the belly of the beast, man. There are no resources. I'm gonna get fired, and then I'm gonna go home and tell my girlfriend the one thing I had going on in this town I just got fired from, and then she's gonna dump me. That's insane. Don't worry about me. It's gonna be me. I I am off the hook. It's not a big deal, we're all drunk.
0: My friend's father, Frank, is a fortune teller. And the first time I met Frank, I must have been about 17 years old. And Frank did what Frank does best. He read my fortune. Now, let me be honest with you. I really don't believe in fortune telling. But I have to admit that in the 30-something years since that meeting, there have been numerous occasions where I've heard myself think, oh my God, that is exactly what Frank said was going to happen. But there was one thing that Frank told me that I was certain was never going to come true. Because Frank said that I was going to be married twice in my life. He said the first time would be for the wrong reasons, but that the second time I'd get it right. But let me tell you, when I was in the midst of a very ugly divorce from the father of my children, I distinctly remember thinking, Frank, you are wrong. I am never getting married again. But it's funny how our memories work, because it was only a few months after the divorce was settled, now the kids and I were moving into a smaller home, and I came across an old box of mine that was filled with memorabilia from my younger years. Well, my kids were busy playing in the other room, and so I decided to take a moment to just be nostalgic. And I popped the box open and started rummaging through little bits of my past. And sandwiched somewhere between my old gymnastics trophies, my first diary, my collection of concert tickets, of which there were many, I found an envelope... And this envelope was stuffed full of love letters. They were all addressed to me, all written on this flimsy airmail paper because they had come from a place far away and from a man who at that point of my life I had totally forgotten about. Let me explain this one. This goes back way before I had children. Because I used to be a traveler, Home to me was my backpack and wherever I was hanging my toothbrush that night. My parents, they used to call me the wandering Jew. (laughs) But I think more than that, they just wondered, will she ever settle down? And sometimes I wondered the same. And the first time I went to India, I was young, I was naive, but I was open to the experience of India. Like All the travelers I met told me, India is a country that changes you. And I was ready for change. So I was like, India, bring it on. I'm ready for you. I just don't know if India was necessarily ready for me. But India to me was just pure joy. I mean, everything about that country made me smile. Except for the crowded trains. And especially as a woman traveling alone. So I quickly remedied that situation and I bought myself a motorbike. Because I figured this way like I could avoid the trains, I could get off the beaten path and basically come and go through India as I pleased. And so I did. Well, one day after a very long drive, I found myself in this small fishing village in the south of India. And I intended on spending the night, so I checked myself into the only hotel that was in that town and it was actually more of a brothel than a tourist hotel but I was used to those kinds of places in India so it didn't really phase me but the restaurant across the road it had like a little grass hatchet roof it looked very charming and I was really hungry so I went into the restaurant, I grabbed a menu, and I went to sit in the back of the restaurant in a garden with amazing views of the village. What a village it was, let me tell you. I mean, the beaches in this place, they were so inviting. The seafood was plentiful. And Babu, the waiter who served it to me, was delicious. <laughs> no, it was lost at first sight. I smiled at him. Babu smiled back at me. And before I knew it, we were walking hand in hand along the beach. I mean, there was a harvest moon rising. It was bigger than life itself. Oh, festivities were flowing. Music was blaring. The market was hopping. And Babu bought a string of flowers, and he placed it around my neck, and then he kissed me ever so gently. I felt like I had just landed myself on the cover of a Harlequin romance novel, and I was ready to be swept off my feet. And Babu had just the right amount of kindness and seemed like the perfect gentleman to do that. Well, evening turned into night. Night turned into morning. And this went on for, I don't know, two, three, four days. I lost track of time. But then Babu, with a burst of excitement, but in his very limited and horribly broken English, strung three words together for me. He said, wedding, tomorrow, come. Well, I don't even remember the order that the words came out. I just remember being so excited. I was just being invited to an Indian wedding, and I was all about the culture, so of course I said yes. Yes. I wasn't sure how to dress for the wedding. So Babu, in the morning, he brought his little sister over to my room so she could like help me get dressed appropriately for the occasion. And I'm telling you, this girl, she couldn't have been more than 12, and she didn't speak a word of English. But she knew exactly what to do, and she took command of the situation. She wrapped me in a beautiful red sari. She did my hair. Did my makeup. She even painted paisley patterns all over my hands in a rich, deep henna ink. And then she took the ankle bracelets off of her legs, heavy silver ankle bracelets, and handed them to me so that I could wear them. I mean, I refused. She insisted. It got awkward. And then I just smiled graciously. So with bangles on my wrists and these shackle-like chains around my ankles, I was ready to go. Well, I didn't have a mirror to see what I looked like, but I can tell you as soon as I saw Babu see me, my reflection was pretty clear. I could tell that I hit the mark. And especially when Babu leaned into me and he said, Ariel, beautiful. We were ready to go. Well, Babu and I went on my motorbike. He drove, and I sat just like an Indian woman would sit. I perched myself side saddle on the back seat. I put one arm around Babu's waist and the other one clutching my sari so nothing would fall off. And I swear, Babu took the long route to wherever we were going. He drove every street through that town, and all the villagers came out to watch us go by. Babu was having a proud moment, and I was feeling his pride, too. Like, I sat up straight, I smiled at everybody as we passed by, and I remember thinking, wow, this is really India. I have arrived. Where we actually arrived, though, was Babu's family's house, and we were greeted by a sea of faces. They were all strangers to me, way more than I could possibly count. And one of them, an older man, possibly Babu's father, came and he took me by the arm and guided me into the house. He put a cushion down on the floor beside this big gray stone, and then very politely while he pointed at the stone, he said, this is God. And then he pointed at the cushion and he said, please sit. And so I did. Well, as God and I sat together, a whole procession of people started to fill the room, and they all had gifts in their hands. They were carrying like a sewing machine. I saw material. I saw dishware. Everything you could imagine that a young couple would need to start a life together. But I had no idea where Babu was, and things were getting a little weird especially when this priest-like man came in and he took a speckle of red pasty powder off of the stone god and he put a dot of it right on my forehead. Everybody looked at me with big smiles on their faces and all I could wonder is, why did nobody else get a dot? (laughs) Finally, Babu came into the room And he was wearing what looked like white pajamas with a scarf that was wrapped high above his head. And everybody went silent in some form of anticipation. But what happened next, I don't think anybody expected. Because now it was me yelling across the room, Babu, who's getting married here? While well, all those smiling faces turned to horror, as Babu made his way over to me, he kneeled down in front of me and then he began to kiss the tops of my feet. I was filled with a burning rage. It took every ounce of restraint that I had not to kick him in the teeth. But the final straw was when Babu went and he picked up a little dead fish out of one of God's offering plates, brought it over to my face, now expecting me to open my mouth and eat it, at which point I pushed his arm away and I said, Babu, even if I wanted to eat a dead fish, I can help myself. And then Babu looked at me and he said, My wife, you now eat from my hand. I looked at him and I was like, my wife? I never signed anything. I am not your wife. And with the help of God beside me, I pushed my way up to standing. I saw a pathway out and I beelined it through the door. And now not at all like an Indian woman, I hiked my sari up. I got on my bike and I drove off as fast as I could. Well, Babu caught up to me at my guest house. I was packing my stuff, getting ready to go, in fact, putting my toothbrush in the case when he walked in. And he was sad. Between his spurts of tears, he would mutter the words, my wife, my Ariel, my wife. I really wanted to console him, but I didn't want to perpetuate the wrong idea. So I tried to explain marriage from a Canadian perspective. I said, you know, in Canada, a couple meet, they date, families meet, they arrange a wedding, they sign a paper, and only when that paper is signed, only then do we say it's marriage. You and me, we never signed a paper. And Babu explained to me how in his heart, in front of his family, his God, his village, I will always be his wife. To which I replied... I've got to go now. Well, in an awkward way of being polite, we exchanged addresses. But I knew I was never going to keep in touch with him. And as I drove off into the rest of my Indian adventures, with my helmet flooded with my tears, you know, I wasn't angry at Babu. But I was upset with myself. Because I knew I had totally overstepped cultural boundaries without even a consideration of how Babu would feel, how selfish of me. How could I? But as the henna faded from my hands, so did my thoughts and memories of Babu. But you know, it was ten years after when I sat there with Babu's letters, and I thought, I wonder what happened to Babu. And I noticed, like, I remembered that when I received the letters, but I also remembered why I stopped opening them. You know, they were getting way too sad to read as time was going by. But in that moment, in the sadness of my own divorce, I just wanted to open the rest of the letters. I think what I wanted was to feel that unconditional love that I had and to know that I was worthy of it. But I want to share with you something that was in the last letter that Babu wrote to me. Because it actually started with him saying, My dearest Ariel, this is the last letter I'm writing. Because without you, my love, I cannot live. And as I read into it further, I realized I'm holding Babu's suicide note. I wanted so badly to just rip it up and forget him all over again. But how could I? I read it right through to the end. And Babu, he even drew a picture of me, of the grass hut restaurant with the garden view, and he captioned it by writing, I sit here every day waiting for you to come into my life again, and you never come. And then he signed it, Your Loving Babu. And his closing words were, My love, we will meet again in another life, my wife. And there I sat, the letters now drenched with my tears. And my biggest concern at that moment was my kids playing in the other room. And how could they see me like this? How could I explain this to them? Like, even through the divorce, I haven't cried. I stayed strong for them. So I quickly tucked Babu's letters away into the envelope and I shoved them down into the bottom of that memory box. Oh, But you know, I wished that his suicide was not real. But in my gut, I knew it was. And you know, it's amazing because it was a whole decade after that trip, and that's what it took for India to change me. Because up until that point, I thought I could walk through this life without even leaving a mark, without even being noticed. But as small and as insignificant as we all are, I will never take it for granted the impact that we all leave on each other as we cross each other in our journeys. And you know Frank, the fortune teller? He was right. I did get married twice. The first time to Bebu and that was completely for the wrong reason. But the second time, even through this awful divorce, I just listened to the sound of my kids laughing and I know I married that one for the right reasons. Thank you.
2: is risk this is thundercat behind me now and we just heard from ariel shirker before that a little interstitial by our episode editor jeff barr It's December. As much as we love getting seasonal, this month can be a little stressful, too. We've all got a long list of things to do for the holidays. If life insurance is one of the things way down on your list, Policy Genius might be able to help you cross it off. They'll find you the right life insurance at the best price and do all the work to help you get covered. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare notes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. They can also help you find the right home and auto insurance, or disability insurance, or pet insurance. So, if you need life insurance, but aren't sure where to start, why not start at policygenius.com? It only takes a few minutes to find the right life insurance policy, apply, and cross another thing off your to-do list. PolicyGenius. When it comes to life insurance, it's nice to get it right. Our final story on this week's episode comes from Kurt Mullen. Kurt shared this one at the Risk Live show that we did in Burlington, Vermont. And you can find him on Twitter, at Kurt Mullen. Here he is now with a story we call, You Don't Know Jack.
4: So I have this little scrap of paper. It has a name and a phone number. This little scrap of paper, it's making me nervous because that name, Jack, is my father's name. And we've never talked before. In fact, I have just one memory of Jack in the living room of the house I grew up in in Burlington, Massachusetts. I'm three. My brother's seven, the TV's on then my brother's up at the window because he sees something going on out there. And he turns. It's Jack. Now, I don't know who Jack is. I just know he matters, like really matters. The way my mother bombs in to the living room between us, this nervous look on her face, and goes to the window and then to the door and doesn't want to open the door. And I'm standing there with her, my mother, friendly. Usually welcoming, a little cautious, smokes true blues, is a substitute teacher. But she's not going to open this door for him, and she keeps the chain on, and I'm looking up and I see this man's face, and it happens really fast. There are words back and forth, and then the door slams shut and bolted, and then it's, "Up to your rooms, both of you, right now, get up there." And it's scary to see my mother made to feel this way by someone on the other side of the door, this strange man. And I go running up to my room scared but excited too because looking out my own window, I can't get enough of watching him move through the yard. This um, good-looking guy, athletic, and he's got like this leather jacket on, like a cool one, like it's Starsky and Hutch cool. And then there's my brother saying, that's Jack. He's our father. Now I have this scrap of paper. I'm 28 years old, and my brother's 32. I only have his number because my brother's been doing a lot of work on his life, beginning with sobriety. And this whole meeting our father thing is like the next nut to crack. And I love my brother. We don't live near each other, but suddenly he's calling me a lot. And it doesn't take me but a second because, yeah, right. We got to do this. You're right. And we're like in this great buddy movie together. We have this like shared sense of purpose. And I have this phone call to make and I'm pretty keyed up. Hello, Jack, this is Kurt. Well, hey there, big guy. He's not nervous at all. And he wants to know a lot about me and ask me a lot of questions. And, but I want to know about him. Yeah, well, I, I work two jobs a day. I'm never late. I never call in sick. I work overtime whenever I can. I really like to get that check. And when I get home at night, I like my ice cream. Like I usually finish the pint. But in the mornings, I go into the garage and I pump an iron. I... Always loved the way it made me feel. And I got a big post of Arnold in the wall out there Arnold Schwarzenegger, because after 25 years in South Florida, Jack hasn't lost his Boston accent. Yeah, I got a belly full of Hagendars, but I got more power. <laughs> so I got to go meet this guy. But I got to get right with my mother first. So I call her to tell her what's up. You're, you're going to go see Jack? Are you going to stay with him? No, Ma, I, I have a friend. I can, I can stay at their place. Does he still own a gun? He always did when I knew him. I don't know really anything about him except for the times when I was younger and I was able to press her for information and get her to talk about him. Yeah, well, in the early 60s, he was in medical school, and he, but he got sick. And his parents had to put him in McLean Hospital. And he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Wow, well, how long was he in McLean for? Well, more than a year. And, and what was he like when you met him? Well, he seemed normal to me. And, you know, he was never going to tell me about McLean or mental illness. And, and his parents, they thought like I was the savior come along. And they were never going to tell me the truth. Well, not long after, my brother calls me. And he's acting all nonchalant. Yeah, I got this killer deal on a flight. I got some time uh, from work coming up. And I booked a room at the Days Inn near Jack's house. I, I leave on Tuesday. You're, you leave on, you're going to see Jack without me. You're leaving on Tuesday. Well, I mean, I got this killer deal on a flight. I mean, do you want to come? And he knows I can't turn it around that fast. And I walk around like really pissed off for a few days. And then I'm like just surprised that I'm even surprised because this is just my brother's M.O. He's a lone wolf. He wants to have his own experience. So the next time he calls me, it's from the days in, the last night of his trip. And my brother is 6'4", is muscular, a man's man. Like, he's not in a hurry to tell you how he's feeling. But on this call, I can barely understand the one sentence he wants to say. He, he did not need to be... He did not need to be forsaken. He did not... forsaken... That's an interesting word. But I have to remember, my brother's experience is different than mine. Like He remembers when Jack lived in our house. He remembers calling him dad. And I didn't find out until we were all grown up that my brother was worried that he'd get to his early 20s and he'd be crushed by paranoid schizophrenia too. Well, my brother gets to his early 20s and he doesn't get... That, but he gets mental illness, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder. And so he knows the drag that it can create. And he's only recently gotten sober, and so he's fully understanding the isolation. So, yeah, forsaken. It's Late October, when I arrive in South Florida, I'm in a rental car in front of Jack's little stucco house, and I'm waiting for him to come back from work, and his red pickup truck comes wheeling down the road. I'm right at his driver's door, and when it comes open, I see like, how he's a big guy, especially in the belly. And he's sort of wriggling off that front seat there. And I can see beyond him that there's like a mountain of newspapers, magazines, and like fast food wrappers and paper cups on the passenger seat and all over. He's been cutting fish at public supermarket all day. And he has this white shirt on and it's all yellow at the bottom like he's been wiping his hands there. And he doesn't smell very good. And I'm a sweater just on a hot... Day sweating through my clothes. So, when it's just a handshake, it's probably good that it's just a handshake. But he doesn't look me in the eye like I, I want him to. And to be fair, we're, we both just keep moving. It's a nervous moment. Follow me, I'll show you the house. So, I, I follow him, and he's got like a, a limp on the left, like a bad limp on the left side. And we get inside, and the air is super stuffy. It's just this little house. And all the the blinds in the living room are pulled shut. And there's a dog somewhere barking maniacally. And then the birds are going wild. And Jack leaves me in the living room to go change. And I've heard about these bird children. There are 26 of them. I just had never imagined them all clustered together like this. And the closer I get to this cluster of cages, the louder they become. And it's creepy all their beady eyes on me. And when I turn, all the furniture is covered in dust and bird dander. But there's that dog. It's barking and, and it's slamming against the door, like just jumping against this door like in a, a spare bedroom. And it only stops that to go make this low, sinister grrrr. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, that sound, I'm feeling it right in my gut gut and I'm bracing like it's going to come out and fight me and Jack walks in the room in just his pants (laughs) in a hat (laughs) and it's not a baseball hat either it's like one of these hats you see state troopers wear with a wide brim all the way around and he's all belly and chest looking like he just walked off stage with the village people. And I notice on his chest, there's like barely any hair. And I'm like, that's not what I got going on up here. Are you sure we're related? And he wants to know what I do for exercise. Do you lift weights? How much do you weigh? And then he disappears. And the birds are going wild. And the dog is going wild. And the place smells like piss. And he's acknowledged none of the madness around me. And I'm sitting there saying, this is truly fucked up. I'm 28 years old, but I'm sitting here in this room, and I would never make myself at home here, and he just disappears. He doesn't acknowledge any of it, and I'm upside down inside. So I got to get out of there. I'm 28 years old, but I'm much younger than that because my father is, like, not a real adult. He, I'm much younger than that because I want him to come in and make all this right, but he doesn't even see it in this dog. I mean... I, It's just lunging against the door, and the door is obviously hollow, and I'm thinking, could it? Your dog is freaking me out. It's all right, it's all right. It's not all right, he's lumbering towards. She's a Rottweiler. My dog, it's a a Roddy. She's just a love, a daddy's girl, 165 pounds. You gotta meet her. Sybil. (laughs) Sybil? Who the fuck names their dog Sybil? (laughs) I don't know. But I don't know my father. I just know when he limps by me, he's going to go right to her door and get her out and introduce his dog daughter to his long-lost son, Kurt. Hey, we're going to have a family reunion right here, except I'm not showing up. I run out the front door, and I slam it behind me. And Jack, a few minutes later, he comes out fully dressed, He's got a white button-down shirt tucked in over, over his belly into his black dickies. He's got that hat on and a badge on his chest. He's a security guard at night, unarmed, best that I can tell. You like barbecue? Yeah, Jack, I, I do like barbecue. Good, there's a place that's not that far. Okay, we'll, we'll take your truck. Ah, He explains there's just too much stuff in there for a passenger. So we take two cars to the barbecue place, and when we get there, I ask for a booth. And so I'm sitting across the table from my father for the very first time in my life, and do I have some questions after all these years? Yeah. Like, Jack, you've been diagnosed with a serious mental illness. Like, are you getting treatment? Like, how do you get on? And what happened at McLean? And how is it that you were able to leave my mother when she had two sons and she was completely broke? And how does that work? Like, all those years you don't see me or you don't reach out to me at all, like, do you just pretend I don't exist? Yeah, I have some questions. But tonight I just have 45 minutes. And so when he starts talking about that touchdown pass he he threw for Reading High School back in the fifties that won the game in the last minute, and when he starts talking about my mom in the early days and how much she just loved ice skate, I'm all ears, and I'm sitting across the table from him and I'm getting the resemblance. So much of this is a physical experience that I just I feel this. It's like magnetic. The first time I see him, I know I want to see him again. It's that magnetic. And even while I'm sitting there, I have to admit, he looks way more like my brother than I do. And I also have to admit, if it wasn't for my brother and his prodding, I probably wouldn't have made this trip. Like, I was sort of used to this idea that I wouldn't meet my biological father. And what is that on his... No... On his shoulder, yeah. It's like this perfect white pyramid of bird shit. (laughs) Undisturbed, but totally disturbing. And it would be completely like me to lose my appetite and push my plate away. But I'm having dinner with my father for the first time. And nothing so small is going to pull me out of it. And when he's talking about the summers at Wingersheek Beach in Gloucester, Massachusetts, I'm looking at his hands and I'm thinking, oh, that's why my hands look like this. And when he gets up, it's because he has to go to work. And when he puts out his hand, I'm still eating my sandwich. And when we do shake hands, he looks at me. This time he does. And then he drops a bunch of cash on the table. What's this? Ah, I got dinner. It's the least I could do after all these years. And then he lumbers out. Five years after this, my brother will be in a whitewater kayaking accident in West Virginia and he'll die. That trip that he made was the only time that he saw Jack. I'll get 14 more years with Jack and I'll never stop missing my brother. And the fact that I can sometimes see my brother's face in his, well, how can I not love him at least for that? Well, I find some other reasons, and I become his caregiver at the end, the last two years. And he gets medical attention. He gets his house cleaned up. He gets a lot of things. And we spend a lot of time together. But in this booth, after he lumbers out of that restaurant, I feel like I can finally relax because I've been keyed up for this moment for a long time. So I ask for the check, and I pick up the cash, and I count it, and I can't wait to talk to my mother. The least he can do after all these years, it's not enough to cover the bill. Thank you. wasn't old, but he was a man. He lived in the
2: sand at the island. The kids would all sing, he would take a key.
4: So they rode on his head in the first
2: They try, try, try. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is The Who behind me. I haven't heard this song in forever. And we just heard from Kurt Mullen, who you can find on Twitter, at Kurt Mullen. Don't forget, we have our school, thestorystudio.org, for all of our educational training around storytelling, including one-on-one sessions over Skype, Group sessions online, uh, group sessions in person in New York, Los Angeles, and Minneapolis, and our corporate workshops, also our video workshops. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Follow us on all of our socials on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at risk show on Twitter and Instagram. I am at the Kevin Allison, and you can find anything you want to know about the podcast at risk show.com and if you want to see risk live information about where we're appearing next is always at risk das slash tour folks today's the day take a risk
1: Kids come to check,
2: They couldn't prevent Jack from being happy. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Now come on, stop worrying.